0: Welcome everyone to our NCAA social series dealing with COVID-19, I'm Andy Katz. Pleased to be joined by Dr. Mark Emmert, the NCAA president, and Dr. Brian Hainlein, our NCAA chief medical officer. So Dr. Emmert, this is week seven of us doing this social series, but it was eight weeks ago. It's kind of crazy to think like that, but it's eight weeks ago that all this just came crashing down. That first 24, 36, 48 hours, what was that like for you?
1: Yeah, it is hard to imagine that it was it was eight weeks ago. It's it's been uh, very very peculiar for everybody, of course, during this time frame. Uh, you know, when we when we made the decision, and we can talk about that uh, the the dynamic of that a bit if you want to, Andy, of course. But when we made the decision, we meaning me, the Board of Governors, with the advice of all of those around us, um, we knew that we were making the right choice. So there was no uncertainty about. The decision, but the but the hard reality after you make the decision and after you make the call of what you know what that is really meaning in the lives of so many people that that was the hard part that settled in as we moved through those next few days. You know there there was a, a mountain of work to be done by uh, Dan Gavitt and his team and Joni Comstock and her teams to begin to unravel just the logistics of championships and. You know, we had a a ton of things to do. Starting to sit down and look at all of the implications of this, but but the part that was most painful and most deeply felt was the the human impact. You know, I I on uh, Friday the 13th of all days, the day after we made the call, I, I had to talk to coaches. So I I just picked up. I had to for my own mental health. I just picked up the phone and. You know, called a handful of coaches um, just to talk to them and and tell them you know how bad we felt about having to do this. You know, I, I called the coach at Dayton. Here was here was the Dayton Flyers on that amazing run, and I, I I couldn't imagine what it was like to, to sit down with those kids and say it was over. Or you know, I called the women's coaches at Maryland and Oregon and chatted with them and and Michigan State and Gonzaga and I just you know just people that I know and have a relationship with to to see how this was settling in, to see how their, their kids were responding and dealing with it, and uh, just to, to, to make sure that, that we were doing anything and everything we could to support uh, these young men and women.
0: So all those decisions, and we don't have to go through all of them, I'm just curious in terms of everything coming to a grinding halt, uh, and at that point, we weren't initially sort of you know, banned from going to certain buildings and things of that nature. It was all initially just the, the large groups together. What was it like to have to unravel all of the planning and basically cancel vendors and you know, arenas and facilities? All those things that take years to set up all had to be basically canceled within a few days
1: yeah, it was it was a pretty dramatic few days for the for the staff. I, I was just and i and I remain Andy just incredibly proud of the whole team in the NCA national office. And the committees too that that worked on this, the men's and women's basketball committees, uh, obviously were, were right in the throes of uh, putting together their their selection processes, and, and and so they were getting information from us. Danny Gavitt and and Lynn Holzman Holzman were working with them and doing everything they could. And everybody just shifted gears and said, "Okay, we made the decision. This is awful, but but now we got to get on with with uh, unraveling it," as you say. And so, yeah, canceling out all the hotels dealing with uh, the travel uh, the travel plans and all the vendors and, and backing that all out. And then, of course, within uh, another day or so, we, as you know, made the decision to also cancel all the spring championships. So then the same thing started all over again, but with another 20 or so championships for the spring. So it was a very, very hectic, um, just full week, really, of trying to get all of that uh, wound back up, and then and then we we're still doing some of it, of course, because it's they're complicated arrangements with all of these vendors and all the hoteliers and all the the uh, travel agencies and and the charter travel and everything. So it it was it was I guess um, you know therapeutic to have a ton of work to do immediately after a, a very gut wrenching decision like that. But it was it was done really well. Everybody threw themselves at it, worked very, very long hours, and and we're in a good spot today given all that happened.
0: So Dr. Hayline, at that same time, uh, take me through how that advisory panel was put together and brought up to speed about what needed to be done in terms of the medical health and safety decisions at the same time
2: yeah so you know the advisory panel was a nice cross-section of individuals looking at public health global health infectious disease our membership competitive safeguards and and a security expert so you know it's interesting they were it seemed like maybe one or two steps ahead of everyone else they were you know one person was inside the cdc on a regular basis another with health and human services and so It was just on a daily basis saying, okay, now we did this. What's the next step? What's the next step? And really just trying to understand this pandemic because, you know, at the time we had very little scientific information. It was the papers from China were just starting to be published. You know, we had unofficial data from Italy, but we didn't have any academic papers coming from Italy. So, so they were all scrambling and, and trying to just stay a little bit of ahead of the game so, so you know, we could we could get good guidance from them. So it was, a, it was a really intense time with the advisory panel.
0: You know, Dr. Emmer, one thing that we didn't have to deal with in that immediacy of the, those couple of days was a student athlete who at least publicly, we still don't know, maybe someone did, but publicly had tested positive. The way the NBA had to deal with that, with Rudy Gobert first, uh, and then obviously that re- that created a whole, uh, you know, avalanche of decisions for Adam Silver in the NBA. I mean, how concerned were you as these conference tournaments were going on in those first few days of that week that we were going to hear of a case like that?
1: Well, we were we were deeply concerned about it, and of course that factored into the the decisions, you know, as Brian and the. Advisory team were working their way through this huge medical uncertainty, um, but we were all, you know, we we were listening to them and also watching all of the data coming in from around the country. We we're having some states beginning to make some decisions. Ohio, if you remember, made a, a very early call in all of this, uh, and and it was clear that this was going to be a very jolting event, but hard to predict. Um, and, and then when you you get uh, Rudy Gobert's case, you know that that obviously was just another important data point, but it just reminded us that that uh, you know very healthy, strong athletes can can get this too, and and we have uh, many, many more athletes obviously competing than the NBA or another professional sport league, and we move them all over the country, uh, we move them on very short notice, and and all of a sudden the probability of of uh, infection shot up in our minds, and that was really critical in making the call to, to stop the tournaments.
0: All right, so let's spin forward to where we are now, and obviously where we hope to get to here in a few months. Um, last week after we talked, Dr. Hainline, the core principles of resocialization of sport came out. Um, what do you want people to know from that uh, that are maybe the most important critical points of that document?
2: I think there are three really important points, Andy. One is that this is a phased in approach. So this isn't like a national red light, green light, and all of a sudden now it's a green light and everyone goes out and does what they want. You know, it really needs to be carefully planned so that we understand that people can do the right thing and that the infrastructure support is there. So that's one part of it. The other is that there has to be a good sense of surveillance. And, and that really has to be at the campus level, the regional level. So if we're going to start opening up society, we need to know what that means. And that's what, that's what surveillance is all about. So we, we need to improve the infrastructure for that. And then finally, the testing is going to be really important. And, you know, this is what... I'm discussing all the time with my counterparts in like the NFL or the NBA and, and other sports, so what does testing really mean and how often does it has to be done, you know, especially if you're in a contact sport where the athletes are, are close to one another. So, so the, the testing component, especially getting a rapid diagnostic test on the one hand and then understanding immunity on the other, that's going to have to really improve over the next several weeks. So, so those three parts of the document are really critical that this is gonna be rolled out in a, in a manner that's successful.
0: So uh, Dr. Emmer, you actually can straddle both worlds because you talk to presidents that need to have students on campus before student athletes can compete. Um, so it's both the regular student body and the student athlete population. What are you hearing from presidents about ways in which they can get students safely on campus in the fall?
1: Yeah, it's the the most important question, Andy, because of course uh, college athletes are college students, and and you can't uh, you you can't have college sports if you don't have colleges open and having students on them. You, you don't want to ever put student athletes in a at, at greater risk than the rest of the student body. So everybody's very very well aware of that. I've probably talked to I suppose a hundred presidents over the past six seven weeks around the country big schools small schools uh, public privates all over the place and and there's anxiety as you'd expect because of the high levels of uncertainty uh, we need the the uh, systems in place that that Brian was just outlining before we can have the appropriate level of testing and the appropriate levels of being able to track and and uh, deal with any outbreaks that that occur uh, but at the same time, they're exploring all of the options. So, so if I had to describe a typical presidential thought process right now, they're all looking at at maybe three scenarios: one where you move towards something that looks like normal campus behavior, with some additions of uh, sensible things, social distancing, and all the sanitation processes you want to take, and and figuring out what they can and can't do with residence halls, and and but but trying to think about it as a fairly typical school year. The, the middle ground is is then some kind of hybrid where you look at those places where the, the social distancing may not work or may not be possible. So you think of large lecture halls. I was president of Washington. Uh, Washington, it's not uncommon to have a 200-student lecture. So can you take those courses and move them online and deliver those kind of courses in a, in a unique hybrid fashion and then still move toward the laboratories, the studios, the, the other small seminar models where you really need face-to-face interaction, but you can maintain social distancing. How can you make that work? And then the, the third one that they're all trying to avoid because they, they know it's not what students want, but maybe necessary is what does it mean to go back all online? Uh, they've all had a a good experience, well, a, a healthy experience with it. Uh, this this uh, spring, as they've they've struggled to to move from from uh, traditional classes to online, and you know in a matter of days, and now they've had more experience with it, and they they all know they can do a better job of it. But they're they're gaming all those scenarios out, all three of them. How do you game game plan for those things? And and then they're going to continue to watch uh, the evidence, listen to their state and local uh, health officials, and of course see what's going on at the national level.
0: So, uh, and this is for both of you, and maybe you can start with you, Dr. Emmert, and, and pick it up, uh, Dr. Hayline. Uh, you know, so many different states are on different tracks right now. Uh, some are opening up more than others. Some aren't open at all. And we're seeing plenty of statements from university presidents, uh, plan to, will, you know, all the sort of catch keywords of, of hoping to be um, in person in the fall, uh, and some going further than others. What happens if we don't have uniformity across the country. And some schools are open, the full, some have the hybrid, and some not at all.
1: Well, I think we should assume that's going to be the case, Andy. You know, it it strikes me, and Brian's the expert here, obviously not me, but it, it, it strikes me that it's very unlikely that uh, we'll reach a place sometime this summer where everybody feels equally confident and equally comfortable because this is this is so different, differentiated by geographies and urban density and and, and a whole array of different uh, demographic variables that that the level of confidence is going to vary from campus to campus, and those have got to be local decisions based upon the best available uh, evidence and data that they have in front of them. So it it seems to me that we will see some schools in in uh, maybe all three of those those scenarios that that I described, and. And that has interesting implications of course for intercollegiate athletics. Uh, the, the All the various member committees and the conferences are all talking right now about what does it mean if we have that sort of scenario uh, where we've got different opening times or different opening models. Uh, what does it mean if we have to, if you look at a conference for example, if a conference has some schools open and some not, you can't run a regular schedule what does it mean if you've got that scenario how do you adjust all of the rules to provide as much flexibility as you possibly can do to uh, let student athletes have a good a good experience in that in that season first and foremost we're going to go back to our priorities got to keep student athletes and all students and their staffs and the coaches and everybody around them healthy and safe that's got to be you know the the number one priority then you got to say okay what can we do to make sure they have a as good an academic and athletic experience as we possibly can and if you've got a got to re- relax a variety of the regulatory regimes that are in place around how many games are in a season can you play the same opponent more than once of you know all of those things then fine let's figure out how we can relax those let's keep our priorities in place and and recognize this is gonna be a very unusual school year and and we just have to make the best of it.
2: Dr. Haline? Yeah, just picking up on that, I mean, it's sort of two things, two decisions have to be made, one is, we aren't going to have one sort of national time when everyone can start preseason, so there's going to be a little bit of inequity there, if you will, and so, but that already exists to a degree in college sports. The southern schools can start some sports earlier than the northern schools, and if you're out west, the mountain, and 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 there's wildfires, they might not be able to train for a couple of weeks. So, so that's going to exist. But getting back to to, to President Emmerich's point, the most important thing is what's going to be the minimum amount of time that's going to be necessary that you have to be in preseason, for example, before you can start football. And so what's happened is there are a number of, of committees. There's a staff committee, which is multidisciplinary. And then we're working with competitive safeguards, football oversight committee, men's and women's basketball oversight and and, and you know the competition oversight committee. And we're developing all of the what if scenarios. And to President Embert's point, it requires being nimble and, and sometimes liberal in the interpretation of of, of rules and regulations and, and bylaws so that you know we may have to change them, but then there's always going to be this minimum requirement for what is it going to take to get an athlete out there safely. And so one of the risks would be, if you look at a sport like football, is that we begin the season too quickly. And then you're at risk of, of musculoskeletal injuries or, or other sorts of injuries. So I think that's where you're gonna have uniformity that, that there's gonna be a minimum requirement for the amount of practice the, and, and even the amount of competition that's necessary before a championship.
0: So Dr. Halon, I wanna start with you. What happens if state schools and especially conferences aren't ready to start on the same date? How does a national organization like the NCAA maintain competitive equity. Uh, if I'm understanding you, Dr. Halen, does that mean that you still have to have that six weeks, if that's what it ends up being, of preseason practice before you can compete in games, even if that means one league is starting a month before
2: another? Well, that's where we are right now. So in, in working with the American Football Coaches Association Football Oversight Committee, and they, they've actually worked out a four, six, eight week scenario. None of it's written uh, down and none of it's in stone right now, if you will. Um, but they're thinking that there is going to have to be a, a, a minimum amount of time. And, and so right now it's circling around that, that four to six week mark. And so you wouldn't be able to to shorten that. So yeah, that, that's where there's gonna be some differences I think that will play out regionally. So in terms of the fall
0: sports and winter sports where the NCAA does have complete control, Versus, uh, you know, the conferences with the football playoff, uh, soccer, for example, Dr. Emmer, If um, does it still apply that if School X is ready uh, mid-August and it's determined that you need whatever it is, two three weeks to prepare for soccer, and then the next school isn't ready till September 20th, uh, do they then have to still have that two or three weeks before they can compete in those in that particular sport?
1: Yeah, the issue is, as uh, Dr. Hayline was saying, is is got to be built around what's the the minimum necessary time to have a, a young man or young woman be physically ready and mentally ready to compete again. Uh, they they may well not have as much time in in game plan prep or in you know skills development or a variety of other things. But this is first and foremost, it's got to be: are they healthy to compete? And, and if the answer is they need, I'm, I'm making these numbers up, they need three weeks in soccer to get ready. It doesn't matter um, <laughs> what the competitive issue is going to be here. They need to put in that amount of time before they can safely compete. That, that's that got to be the, the critical variable here. And that's what I meant when I, I said, you know, this is going to create some inequities. Brian said it, too. And and we would much rather relax some of those Competitive equity issues than ever put a young man or young woman woman at risk uh, physically or mentally. So, those are those are all plausible scenarios, Andy. We hope that's not the case, of course, and and we're all uh, assuming and trying to make sure that we can move forward simultaneously. But again, uh, I think it's it's unlikely that everybody's going to be in the same place at the same time, and and that will create some of those those difficulties.
0: So, what are the chances also of relaxing? The practice restrictions, if some schools—and I know it's going to be a very minority, if any—bring uh, their students or student athletes on campus this summer, whether it's mid to late July or you know even earlier August, uh, and others don't. And then, in addition to that, if it's that extreme scenario of the third one that you pointed out, Dr. Emmer, where there is no in-person class in the fall um, yet, you know, universally. Uh, but yet some schools are, and their athletes are on campus. What are the chances that that practice aspect, you know could be relaxed as well that in October, November, they could at least practice even if there's no games across the country?
1: Yeah, uh, first of all, uh, all of the uh, in Division one, for sure, all of the the commissioners and and every president that I've talked to is is in clear agreement. If you don't have students on campus, you don't have you know don't have student athletes on campus. Uh, That doesn't mean it has to be, you you know, up and running in the full normal model, but you've got to treat the health and well-being of the athletes at least as much as the regular students. And and so uh, if if a school doesn't reopen, then they're not going to be playing sports. I mean, it's really that simple Uh, in, in terms of flexibility around around practices. That's part of the discussions that are going on right now among all the members. Uh, Brian's deeply involved in those conversations, and, and and again, from from my point of view, and I know from from the advisory group's point of view, this again, this is all about health and safety. Uh, we we if we're going to relax on something, it's about competitive fairness. It's not, but we're not going to relax on health and well-being. That that's got to be front and center right now in every decision that's made. Uh, will that mean that some school doesn't play as full a schedule? as another school and and that may create some inequity in their ability to participate in a championship possibly. And and we'll have to cross that bridge when we get there, but you build everything around safety.
0: Yeah, I mean, those those kind of problems are good to have if we have to decide.
1: I'll be delighted to have those debates (laughs) later in the fall.
0: So the fan aspect, which clearly is probably the last part of this. Uh, First, it's students on campus, student athletes being able to compete, Uh, practice and compete, and then we get to fans. Um, You know, I've seen all different comments from presidents, ADs, about, well, if it's safe, if it's, you know, uh, safe enough for student athletes and students to be on campus, why wouldn't it be safe for fans? problem, of course, is you've got 10,000, 15, 30, up to 100,000 fans in some of these football stadiums. So, Dr. Hayline, help us here understand the difference between a community of student athletes and students versus now bringing in fans from
2: around the community,
0: around the state, around the country, to an event?
2: Wendy, it's always about having a a sense of control of of your environment. And and so if you're just talking about student-athletes and you have the the athletic trainers, the team physicians, the coaches, they've gone through all the different scenarios and, and they have a sense of control, they have a sense of contact tracing, once you bring fans in, you're bringing in this whole other element and and potentially where you don't have control of the situation and and it's potentially a public health risk. So I think just like we're staging things where you know first the student athletes are coming in 10 at a time and then maybe groups that are larger, you would wanna take that same approach for fans because you just wanna make certain that from an infrastructure and public health point of view that you can support Um, What you're doing and and I think I mentioned before and and so you you know that this One event that that I'm advising on the the, the US Open tennis championship It's the the single largest annual sporting event in the world, you know, do you hold that? And can you hold it with fans and so you play out all of these what-if scenarios? It's the same sort of approach we would take to say a, a football game and you know initially the thought always is Just have the essential personnel and then you build from there and you would start with a much smaller fan base. And if you can support it, well, then you continue to progress.
0: Dr. Emmer, where are you on, on where the fan aspect of this fits in?
1: Well, the same place that Dr. Hainline is, we're gonna rely on and everybody should be relying on their medical and public health experts to to advise uh, folks. We're we're gonna have to wait and see what local and state and to a certain extent, even federal officials are going to allow in terms of gatherings. But just because uh, there's there's a some some uh, regulation that's been lifted doesn't mean that it automatically means you should uh, immediately put you know 105,000 fans in a in a football stadium. I, I think that the proper thing to do, the sensible thing to do, is to do this phased approach that Brian and the advisory team are talking about, uh, and and indeed the federal government's been talking about where you can. You can begin at one end of the continuum and work your way along. So it's it's plausible to me that you know early in the season, let's just stick with football. You see uh, very very limited fan access, but by the later in the season, as things develop, hopefully in a very positive way, you all of a sudden can see a larger fan bases attending. It's not clear to me socially where communities are and whether or not 100,000 people are ready to go sit in a in a stadium, side by side, quite yet. You know, that's the other piece of this is, um, you know, making sure people have choices that that they can make that, that are they're comfortable with, uh, and and that's got to play out a little bit. And and then the other scenario that we all are nervous about, but we certainly have to think through is, what if we have a, a an outbreak? What if there's a flare-up in a community on a campus? You know, what what. Uh, what do we do then? How does the campus handle it? How does the fan base handle it? What do you do with your student athletes? Uh, we've got we've got just a little bit of time to think through all of those scenarios because that too is is certainly plausible. With 1,100 NCA schools, 19,000 teams, half a million student athletes, you, you know the arithmetic is not in your favor if you think you're not going to have any uh, outbreaks uh, in that cohort. So we, we're working through through all of these scenarios, uh, bringing the best medical advice and public health advice we can to bear, and then helping the schools and the conferences uh, make decisions accordingly.
0: One last topic, Dr. Hayline, are, are masks. And obviously, more states are making it mandatory or suggesting that, that you know we all wear masks when we're out in any kind of public setting. Um, how does a mask translate to the field of play, to the court, uh, when you've you know, you're competing right next to each other, but can't really breathe in a mask, but also you have officials, coaches, stat crew, uh, media. I mean, how do you see the whole mask aspect playing out over the next few months?
2: Well, I think initially, Andy, especially in phases one, phases two, everyone's gonna be wearing masks. Um, You know, if you're in a situation and it's it's just like even, uh, you you know, in in New York today, our uh, Governor Cuomo says, well, wear a mask, if you can't physically distance. And so, you know, if you're doing workouts that are really spaced out, I can see a scenario where people aren't wearing masks, just like in the streets of New York, not everyone is if they can really be spaced out. But once you're in that place where you're close and you don't have that sense of control in phases one and two, I think you're gonna be seeing people wearing masks. As you move into phase three, if we're comfortable from an infrastructure point of view that we can support that well, that's when the masks start coming off and that's when there's the physical contact and that's a whole other level, uh, you you know, where we have to, again, measure, can this be rolled out safely? Can it be rolled out properly? So I think it's around that phase three that you're gonna see the masks going away.
0: And and Dr. Emmert, from you, um, how confident are you that the testing and tracing that we've been talking about uh, will really more likely lie at the feet of, these universities across the country, rather than rely on the local and federal government.
1: Well, uh, everybody in the uh, public public health arena and the public policy arena is is working hard, I believe, on the on the testing issue. And as again, Brian could describe much more effectively than me, the testing is multi phase. There's a lot of issues around it. But we we certainly need to have a much higher level of testing. Uh, If you're going to have contact tracing, you've got to have higher levels of testing. Uh, The details around the frequency of testing, uh, how that's going to work with point of care testing uh, is is going to be to be determined. Uh, What we know is we've got to throw as a nation a lot of resources at that right now. You can't simply turn to a university and say, well, you got to figure that one out on your own. That that doesn't work. There, there's plenty of our member schools that are also the leading medical universities in, the, in America. They're deeply involved in the testing and the vaccine development and the treatment development, but they even they don't have the resources to say, okay, you're now bringing 30,000 students back to campus. We're gonna test everybody right now. No, no one has that capability today. Uh, we need them to get there, we need them to get there fast. Um, and and that's a, a big challenge, but I, I think it's doable. I'm cautiously optimistic, uh, and and we do have a lot of people and a lot of resources being pushed at it, but it's a long way off too.
0: And finally, Dr. Emmer, when in June or July or even early August, uh, do you think these schools and conferences will have to make a decision about any kind of competition in the fall?
1: Well, again, first and foremost, it's going to be up to the schools about whether they're bringing students back and under what model. Uh, many of the presidents that I've been talking to and just thinking of my own time as a president w- would find it very difficult to push that that uh, decision much further than middle or end of June. Uh, so I, I suspect that uh, people are going to have to make decisions Uh, sometime during June, maybe by the 4th of July, based upon the best available data at that time. Uh, There may be an opportunity to delay it a little bit more, but you know, gosh, you have, uh, you've got a college age uh, child, you know, they're they're gonna be wanting to go off to college right after that, Uh, if the model doesn't work, uh, pushing it later than the 1st of July is pretty light.
0: And Dr. Hanline, on that
1: timeline?
2: No, I, I, I think that's right. And it's the same thing for athletics, you know, because right now the assumption is that the dates of the championships, they're set. So if you do the math and you work backward, it would be hard to push athletics back to, you know, a decision past the first week of July.
0: Dr. Mark Emmert, NCAA president, and Dr. Brian Heinlein, NCAA chief medical officer. Thanks again. As always, believe it or not, week seven of our NCAA social series dealing with COVID-19, always incredible educational and informative. You can go to ncwa.org slash COVID-19 for more information on the subject. Stay safe, everyone.